So this morning we are uh, Luke 22. Uh, we're going to be in verses 63 uh, to 71, which is kind of skipping over the part about uh, Peter because we dealt with that already. Uh, this text that we're going to read is really about uh, Jesus, which is maybe no surprise. Uh, it's a gospel. It's, it's in the Bible. It's probably going to be about Jesus to some extent. Uh, but this is uh, really about the true identity of Jesus, uh, how we can know him, how we are to understand him. Also, it's about the challenge for us as human beings of actually grasping him and understanding him as he truly is. Uh, the identity of Jesus is one of those things that has been on the minds of humanity, you might say, since he first came to earth. Uh, Jesus stands alone as a historical, cultural, spiritual figure of great significance uh, for, if you do the math, about more than half of the world's population. Uh, Christians, Muslims, uh, many other different sects would point to Jesus as, as someone of spiritual significance. Now, the challenge, of course, is that there's a lot of disagreement about who he actually is. And in fact, a lot of people think of this question of who Jesus is as, as kind of like an unsolved mystery. Uh, you see a lot of books written, especially in modern times, about trying to figure out, we found the new insight, the new something to, to finally figure out who is, is Jesus. Uh, there are books with the word code in it a lot, Da Vinci Code, Bible Code. If you just figure out this code and then you apply it to the Bible, there's certain numbers that uh, correspond to different verses or letters, then you can figure out this secret truth. And yet the truth is that it's not a mystery. It's not a, there's no code that you need to understand who Jesus is. There are no clues to be discovered. His life and ministry reveal clearly who he is. And in our text in particular, we are going to see it's abundantly clear because there are three key titles that he's questioned about and that it's clear that he, he is these things. And if we understand them, we can know him. The challenge, as I said, is that there are people asking him these questions who are standing in front of him who still don't see him. And, and we're going to get into that. The fact that we can know a lot of stuff about Jesus and yet not truly see him. So, if you want to know who he is, our text is here for you this morning. And let's begin by reading verse 63. Uh, this is after he's been arrested. This is during the night. It says this, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So this is the night, kind of after Jesus was arrested, through the night. Uh, this is Luke condensing a couple of scenes where he went to the former high priest and the current high priest. And then verse 66 is the day. And this would be the uh, start officially of the trials of Jesus. Here he is before the religious authorities. Verse 66. When day came... The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further questioning do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So three points are going to guide our time. Uh, kids, if you have your kind of uh, notebooks there, you can fill out this first one. Number one, Jesus tells us who he is. 
It's not a mystery. Jesus tells us, and, and we see it in the three titles that are given to him in particular. So Jesus tells us who he is. What's the first thing we see? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Look at verses 67 and 68. They ask him point blank, right? The whole point of these religious leaders are trying to figure out who he is. If you are the Christ, they say, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Now that doesn't seem crystal clear. I said to you, it's crystal clear who he is. It seems like Jesus is kind of ducking the question, but this isn't what's going on. Uh, Jesus is answering in a way that is, uh, makes sense given who they are and what they're asking. It's like if someone were to say to you, you know, in junior high, hey, um, hey, do you like Susie, right? And if you don't answer that question, everyone knows you like Susie, right? You, you're, you're answering it without answering it. Why would Jesus answer in that way? Why wouldn't he just say yes? Well, he tells us. He tells us, right? If I tell you, you will not believe, right? He's not denying it. He's, he's affirming it, but also saying, you don't, you're not going to believe me even if I say it. And then he says, even if I ask you, you will not answer. So if he were to say them, what do you think? Do you, do you think I'm the, the Christ? They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't answer. He's addressing them where they are at, which is from a place of, of great skepticism. He is the Christ. He was the Christ. It was abundantly clear in that moment that he's like, yeah, I, I am the Christ. In fact, if anyone had been paying attention to the life and ministry of Jesus, it would have been very, very clear that yes, he is the Christ. We see it from beginning to end. Here's, just, here's what the angels say. This is like the very beginning when Jesus isn't even born yet. Luke 2, 10 to 11, they say this, and the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God isn't trying to hide anything. He's not trying to make it difficult. He sent an angel to shout from the sky, this baby, this is the Christ, just so we're all clear. And then throughout his ministry, there were other people. Like Simeon, when Jesus comes to the temple, is waiting for the Christ, sees Jesus, he's the one. Right? Like the disciples, Jesus says, who do you think I am? Peter, you are the Christ. It happens over and over again to make very clear. Now, it isn't the title that Jesus uses the most. And that's because uh, Christ, what it, what it means is the anointed one of God. In the Hebrew, uh, the word would be Messiah, right? So Christ, Messiah, uh, the chosen one. Uh, and it has some political overtones. So there would have been people who heard Christ and thought, yes, revolution. Grab the spears, grab the swords, let's go to it. And that wasn't what Jesus was trying to do. He was the Christ who came to accomplish the plan of God in the way of God. Uh, a good way for us to think of it is, is we use this idea of, of the Messiah, of the anointed one, the chosen one, a lot in our literature and in our movies. Especially uh, fantasy movies, science fiction movies. Right? Think of Star Wars. Right? Who is, there's, there's a chosen one. Right? A child who comes to bring balance to the force. I mistakenly said it was Luke. Someone corrected me, right? They heard the whole sermon. They came up to me after the first sermon. Uh, one thing, really, I really wanted to talk to you about. It was Anakin. It's actually Anakin who was the chosen one. All right, all right, sorry. Yes, Anakin, the chosen one. Glad everyone was listening. Uh, but you see that again and again. Matrix, right? It's Neo. There's this idea, this compelling idea of this child who is born, who has special powers, abilities, special status, the chosen. We, we feel that sense of significance. That, that is the Christ. That is who Jesus was. The Jewish people at that time were waiting for the chosen one. To do what? To come 
and accomplish the plans of God, to fulfill the promises of God. And this is who Jesus was. This is what he came to do. And we see it because he's doing it right now in this scene. He is accomplishing what God has called him to do. He's walking the road to the cross to accomplish everything that God intends for his people, to bring atonement and forgiveness and freedom. We can't know Jesus, truly know him, unless we understand him as the Christ, as the one who came to accomplish all the purposes of God through the cross and then in every other area of our lives. In fact, this is probably the litmus test in terms of whether someone truly knows Jesus. Because there's a, a lot of people who say they know Jesus and, and speak authoritatively on Jesus. And yet, they deny this aspect of Jesus. Uh, I remember one, it's like a panel discussion I was watching uh, between uh, a bunch of different people. One of them was a Christian pastor. Uh, one of them was a man uh, who was like a new age spiritualist. Uh, you might know his name, Deepak Chopra. And they were discussing the nature of evil. And of course, the person of Jesus came up. And I remember one point where uh, Deepak Chopra got very kind of incensed because they were questioning, pushing him on his, he was talking about Jesus and the Christian pastor saying, I don't, I don't think you really, that's not what Jesus would say, that's not what we do. And, and Deepak Chopra, I remember him saying at one point, listen, I know Jesus. I've written three books about Jesus. I know him. So I went and read uh, one of his books. <laughs> he doesn't know who Jesus is. Uh, in the introduction to his book, here's one of the lines. He said this, uh, Jesus failed to bring about God's rule on the earth was his, one of his descriptions about Jesus. Uh, that's a clear denial of Jesus as the Christ. That, that he came and didn't do the thing that God wanted him to do, that's, that's not what we find in scripture. To know Jesus, it, it's necessary that we see him as the Christ who accomplished all the things of God. Not, it's true, not in the way that people expected, but in a way that was faithful and fruitful to what God had intended. So Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who came, who accomplished all that was necessary on the cross. But Jesus continues. He doesn't just stay with this title as the Christ. If you look at verse 69, he gives a title. He just kind of gives them. Hey, here's another way to know who I am. Verse 69, and um, oh, but from now on, he says, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, this title actually is the one that Jesus uses the most about himself. Right? That Jesus is the son of man. In fact, um, if you look through the New Testament, or the Gospels, there's like 81 verses where Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of man uh, has come to seek and save the lost. All the son of man, son of man, over and over and over again. That's, if you heard him, you knew that he referred to himself as the son of man. So what, what does that mean? It's not a title that is probably very familiar to us. Uh, there's, a, there's a term called the children of men. Uh, that is used in the Old Testament uh, a lot. And that just means like a man, a human, if you're a children of a man. But son of man has uh, other connotations. It's deeper, it's wider. And it, and it comes really from Daniel. Uh, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, has a vision. And he, he records this vision. And there's this title, the son of man. So this is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom 
is one that shall not be destroyed. And if you put all that together, what you, what you see is that the son of man, this being is someone who is human and divine. That, that he is the son of a man. So there's a humanity there, but there's also dominion, everlasting, eternal dominion, glory, everlasting kingdom. People all bow before him. There is this, this grander sense of the son of man. And since the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been saying, that's me. That's me. I'm him. I'm the guy that Daniel was speaking about. Uh, this, this grand person who came from on high, clouds of heaven, and has all of these attributes. This is true. And Jesus double downs on this in the way that he says it. He says, from, from now on, right, the son of man, that's me, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, that position is one of authority and judgment. Uh, this is making very clear to the religious leaders. Look, the, the one you're talking to, right, is the Christ, that's one thing, but also the Son of Man. Meaning, you're judging me now, but, but actually I'm the one who will bring judgment. And again, this is not a surprise. This is not like a, like a secret that Jesus has been keeping and now he's revealing it like a trump card. This is something that if you'd been listening, you would have known this about him. Uh, we get this from John 5. This is back in the early part of Jesus' ministry. It says this, For as the Father has life in him, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is saying to them, in effect, look, the time is coming when I won't be before you. Under your judgment, you will be sitting before me. In fact, every human being will kneel, kneel before me because I am the son of man. I am the true judge. We can't know Jesus truly unless we know him as the judge. Uh, this is not a title that human beings uh, are fond of when it comes to Jesus. This is not the one that we tend to, uh, generally look to. We like him as teacher. We like him as wise, spiritual, you know, sage. We like the moral teacher. We like all that stuff. But we, we don't like the idea of Jesus as a judge. Because it means that we are accountable. It means that there will be a day when we're standing before him. And that we have to give an account for our lives. And it, it brings about a sense of guilt. It brings about a sense of, of shame. But the truth of the matter is that he is the judge. That we can't ignore this, this part of them. The, the religious leaders there, this probably just went right by them. In fact, if you look at their next uh, reference, they don't even take on that part as well. But they hear him saying, what they want to know is that, oh, wait a second. You're saying you're somehow divine. That's what we care about. Because if that's what you're saying, it's going to give us ammunition to kill you. But he is the judge. And we need to see him as such. So Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of man. And next, Jesus is the son of God. So let's look at their response. Verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? Okay, they knew Daniel 7. They knew enough to know. I, you're, you're claiming more here than just some political aspirations. You're actually claiming to be God, which is what we needed. Because if you're doing that, you're contravening the law of the Jews. And so we're going to put you to death. And what's Jesus' response? Uh, you say that I am. Essentially, you said it, right? You're, that, that's true. That's, that's who I am. Now, even this, 
though it seems very clear to be the son of God means you are divine. There's a lot of people who interpret this a lot of different ways. See that he is like a son of God, an angel, a being of like all these different things. But, but listen, th- this is simple enough that every young person in the room can understand this, right? Uh, so kids, think of it. To be the son of a bear means that you are a what? You are, you are a bear, right? To be the son of an aardvark means that you are an aardvark. To be the son of a pigeon means that you are a pigeon. To be the son of God means that you, you are God, That's logically what it means. That's what this title means. It's what he's saying. It's what Jesus claims, that he is divine. He is God himself. He is the son of God. And in case you need a little bit more theological language than than animal illustrations, here's Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, speaking about Jesus. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of on high. It's absolutely essential that we understand that Jesus claimed to be God because he was God. We can't see him as just a prophet. We can't see him as something else other than that. Firstly, because it's what he says about himself. It's what's revealed in scripture. But also because he, will never, he would never be able to be the Messiah and accomplish the things that God sent him to do unless he was divine. No mere man could do it. And we see this in the next thing in this scene that we, this time, it's not something Jesus tells us. It's something that Jesus shows us. And it's this, Jesus is the suffering savior. Everything else in this text, he's telling, he's responding. But, but here we, we see, he's showing us his suffering. In fact, we saw it uh, in the first few verses. Look again, verse 63. Now the men were holding Jesus in custody. They were mocking him. They beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This was a night of brutality and abuse. It was the beginning of the suffering road that would take him all the way to the cross where he would would suffer the most. He would endure the pinnacle of, of suffering as he was crucified. Why did Jesus do this? Well, he did it because we were in a perilous situation. Because humanity was lost. Humanity was in danger. Each one of us had been separated from God. Each one of us had been separated from life and from hope. How? Because of our sin. Because of our rejection of God. It meant that every human being since Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in their rejection of God, deciding to go their own way, disobeying all of the consequences that God promised to them have been passed down to all human beings who from the moment of our birth have a nature that is not bent towards worshiping and obeying the God who made us, but is bent towards going our own way. And it means that we are lost. It means that we are in great danger. It means that all of humanity is lost. And it's, again, it's not a mystery. It's not difficult to see that, that human culture is in a bad way. Just open a paper, open a computer, open, just look around. We see the effects of humans doing their best. We see the violence, we see the injustice, we see the heartache, we see the pain. We can see it on a small scale in our own lives. 
with, with the hurts and the inability we have to actually love each other well or treat each other well, we see it on the grand scale with nations warring against nation. The thing that was true of humanity back in the time of Jesus is still true to this day. That we are lost and that we need a savior. And the only true path to freedom would come from someone who could deal with the essential problem that we have, which is sin itself. That's what Jesus came to do. That, that's what it meant that he was the Christ, that he was the, the son of man and now the son of God, that he came to suffer in a way that would free us from all of the oppression, all of the, the consequences of sin. And again, this is not something that was a surprise. This is something that had been foretold, that God made sure that his people would know. In fact, the religious leaders that were there questioning Jesus, they were waiting for this man, the Messiah that would come, the one, whoever he would be. They had all the, all the prophecy memorized, and yet they couldn't see him right in front of him. Here, here are the things that if you were to say to them, what is Isaiah 53? They would have been able to rattle it off. Here's, here's the prophecy about Jesus standing in front of them. Verses four to six of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was the hope that was foretold. This was what all the Jewish people were waiting for. And here Jesus is, fulfilling this prophecy, literally dripping blood on his way to die for them. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see Jesus who was right in front of them. They couldn't see him as he truly was. See, sometimes we read scenes like this on the road to the cross and our hearts are stirred towards compassion and empathy for Christ, right? I mean, the injustice, the mockery, and, and there's a sense in which, of course, that's true. But if we see this truly, we should have a greater sense of concern and empathy for the religious leaders because they can't see what they are doing. They can't see the hope that is right, right in front of them. And it's a tragic situation. A tragedy for them, not, not for Jesus. He knows what he's doing. It reminds me of, uh, of a book, of a kid's book, which uh, I'm, not, I'm not just using because there are kids here with us. This is a great book. I'm going to put it up on the screen. You might know this book, uh, The Giving Tree. Do you know this one? By Shel Silverstein. If you have kids or grandkids, you've probably read this. Uh, I will uh, summarize briefly. Uh, it's a story about a tree uh, who gives of herself completely. It's a great title. Uh, the boy there on the front cover uh, knows the tree, plays with the tree. Uh, there's a real sense of relationship. And yet as the boy grows, he keeps coming to the tree because of things he needs. He needs money. And so the tree out of love for him says, well, take my apples. Sell my apples in the city and you have money. You can buy the things you want. And he takes the apples. He comes back later as he's grown up a bit and he, and he says, I need, um, I need wood for a house. I want to build a house. And the tree says, well, take my branches. Take my branches, boy. And he takes all her branches, goes, builds himself a house. He comes back later and he says, I want to travel. I want some way to get around. And the tree says, well, look, chop down my trunk. Make yourself a boat. Go and travel. And the boy takes the trunk and goes. And, and years go by and the boy comes back and now he's an old man. And the tree is excited to see the boy. He hasn't seen him in years and says, but boy, it's so good to see you. What can I give to you? The boy says, I don't need much now. The tree says, I have nothing left to give you. The boy says, uh, I don't need much. Maybe just a place to sit down. And the tree, who's just a stump at that point, says, well, 
you can come and sit on my stomp boy. And he comes and he sits. And it's this heartbreaking picture at first. We think of a tree who gives everything and, and is taken advantage of. But there's a greater heartbreak in the novel or the book. The greater heartbreak is that the boy had an opportunity to experience genuine love all his life and he never saw it. He just kept coming in the tree to get and to get and to get. And it strikes me that there are many of us who only see Jesus in that way. That, that we just come to him over and over again for what we can get. You know what it's like in your prayers. You come, we've got a list, right? There's a bunch of things that, Jesus, if you could just do this and this and this, then, then my life would be complete. Then I'd be helped. We, we come to him for the things he can give us. We don't come to him for him. And yet the truth of the matter is he is the one that we need. He is the one who fills us, who ministers to us through his very presence. If we don't see him as he truly is, we will just get meager offerings. The, the, the blessings that we think we need, the circumstantial help. The real challenge for us is that we have trouble even seeing Jesus. So this is the second point. Second point is this. We have real trouble seeing Jesus truly. It's clear from this passage that the religious leaders have real trouble with this. They couldn't see him. They were asking him questions, asking him actually the right questions. These are like, if you had some questions asked Jesus at that time, these would be the ones. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of man? Are you the son of God? He's giving them all the answers and they can't even see him. They, they heard what he was saying, but they didn't hear him. Why was that? That should, that should be a burning question for us. How is it that they had Jesus standing in front of him and they couldn't see him? Well, part of the answer Jesus gives. Verse 67, they say, if, you, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said, if I tell you, you will not believe. Clearly, they had no faith in him for who he said he was. And so without faith, they, they couldn't really believe him. But let's go a little deeper. Why? What was hindering their faith? Why was it so difficult for them to believe that he was the, the thing that he was saying, that he was the Christ, that he was the, the son of man? I think there's a few things that we see here that hinder, hindered their faith and also hinder ours. Like keep us from seeing Jesus. Firstly, I think they were afraid of what they would lose. They had a lot to lose if they actually saw Jesus for who he was. They had status, they had power, they had respect. They were the ones who anyone in Israel would come to for questions about God. Right? They were the religious leaders. They were the priests. They were the, the scribes. If they actually saw Jesus and believed that he was the Messiah, then everything would be gone. Their position, their power, everything they believed, everything they had set up would be gone. That's a scary thing. It's a scary thing for us. If you're someone here this morning that's been thinking about Jesus, interested in Christianity, probably one of the things that that's that's tough is the fear of what your life would look like if you do actually come to faith. There's a whole life. There's a lot of things that you think about yourself, things that people think about you, ways you've lived, everything you've built your life on, that if Jesus is Lord and Savior, then that's going to be gone. That's a scary thing. But here's the thing. You will never see Jesus if you are afraid of what you will lose. You need to realize that he is worth everything. That in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, we have everything that we need. 
of substance, of eternal substance. But the other reason I think they don't actually see Jesus is because for him, he's a means to an end. For them, he's a means to an end. Because they had a job to do, right? They were there, what? To get rid of this, whatever he was, revolutionary, causing trouble. They didn't want all this trouble with Rome. So they knew what they had to do. We have to kill this guy. And so they were just asking these questions so that they could get the answer that they want so that they could accomplish the thing they wanted, which was to just get back to the way things were. So they were talking with him, but they weren't actually interested. Like they didn't really want to hear from him. They just wanted to get what they could and then we have enough to convict him, let's go. And I think the truth is that a lot of us treat Jesus that way. Not that we want to crucify him, but that we we have a goal. Right? We have a plan for our lives. We, we want to accomplish certain things, we want to do certain things. And so Jesus, we just need, I, you know, we have enough faith, enough understanding to be like, I, I should probably uh, look to you, I should probably pray to you, there, because you can help me. That would be great, Jesus. If you could help me, like if that's who you are, then that, you, I want you. But you're never going to see Jesus if that's what you think of him. Because he isn't here to give us what we want. He's here to give us what we need and we can't even see. If, if we could save ourselves, if we could get a life that was worth living, we would do it. We would have done it. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. The other reason their faith is hindered is because they are very confident in themselves. Confident in their own wisdom. Again, these were the guys that everyone came to. They, they walked into that room with a high degree of confidence in their understanding of the situation. Even though they were asking him questions, they, they already had their minds made up about who he was. He's a troublemaker. He's a, a false prophet. He's a, so even though they were asking him, uh, they were vetting everything he said through their own wisdom. Right? They, they had a clear idea about life, reality, him. And so when he spoke, they weren't, they weren't submitting to it. They were ruling over it. And again, I think this is one of the main things that keeps us from really coming to faith and really growing in our faith. Because we might ask questions of Jesus. We might read the Bible. We might be interested in Christianity. But the whole time, we're sifting everything through our own wisdom. Whether we think it makes sense whether we think Jesus is who he says he is, whether it fits into our understanding of the world rather than coming to the scripture and saying, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Rather than coming in humility saying, I I don't think I know who I am or or what the world is or who Jesus is. I, I need to be told. We very often will judge all of the wisdom that is given to us and we'll never know Jesus if we sit in that place. And the sad reality is that these challenges, these problems, this is true for everyone. Like the the truth of humanity is that we all are afraid of losing something. We we all think that we know more than we do. We all see, uh, not just Jesus, we see everyone as a means to an end. Right? In our sin, in our own wisdom, is this not the problem for all of us? That that these things plague us all the time. We're always so afraid. We're always so caught up in our own ideas. How do we, how do we get past this? What hope is there for humanity if, if listen, these religious leaders, they knew more of the Old Testament than, than probably all of us. 
They had memorized it all. They had Jesus in the flesh standing before them and they couldn't see him for who he was. That should make us really worried because don't, isn't one of the things we think, you know, if I could just talk to Jesus, then, then I would get it, right? I got so many questions. If I could just talk to him, this shows us the human heart is so nearsighted or blind or whatever you want to say that we in our own wisdom will never see Jesus as he is. So, so what is the hope? The, the hope is not in us. The hope is in God himself. Here's our third point. Only the spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus truly. That is the hope. That, that is not in this, in this picture, in this uh, passage, but it's the hope that is revealed in scripture. We see the problem here. We see the frustrating problem of humanity. Where do we see the answer? Well, we see it in the rest of the gospel. We see it in the rest of the New Testament where after Jesus has gone to the cross, people actually do come to believe. How is it possible? Because the spirit is at work. So let me, let me show you this. Let me illustrate this through the life of Paul. Saul, Paul, uh, he, if you know his story, one of the, the most amazing conversions of someone who is totally against Jesus and then comes to faith in Jesus. And he's the perfect example because I think Paul is in a very similar situation to the religious, religious leaders. He was a in a position of authority. He was in a position of power. He was the one who after Jesus had been resurrected and the church was starting to grow, he was the one who said, this is crazy. This is threatening Judaism. We gotta get the rid of these guys. And so he was the one who was persecuting and killing them. You see this in Acts chapter nine. I'm gonna read a couple of parts and then I'm gonna show you one part. This is what it says of Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is Paul. He has a vested interest in maintaining the way things are. These Jesus people are messing things up. He is ready to put them in prison, he's ready to kill them. He had a lot to lose. But then, of course, he met Jesus. Right now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. It's actually a pretty similar situation. He's asking Jesus some question. Who are you? Right? And Jesus says, I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Again, he's giving answers, just like the religious leaders. But this time, everything's different. Why? Let's look at our text. See if you can see the difference. Here's what happens. Uh, there's a guy named Ananias. God speaks to him, says, you gotta go talk to Saul. And Ananias is like, I don't wanna talk to him. He's gonna kill me. He's like, no, no, go talk to him. Okay, I'm doing something. So Ananias goes. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. So what happened? Well, after Jesus told Paul who he was, Saul who he was, he was baptized. Why was he baptized? Well, obviously because he believed that what Jesus says is the truth. Well, How'd that happen? Well, because he must have actually seen Jesus for who he was. How did that happen? What was the difference? Spirit of God. He was filled with the Spirit. His blinded eyes were physically opened again, 
but even more so as a picture of what actually was going on in his mind, his heart. The spiritual blindness that he had, that was removed. He could see, he could actually see who Jesus was. And when he saw who Jesus was, he said, I, I need to be baptized. I need to come to, I need to, come to faith. I, I, I want to follow him in a moment. Why? Because the power of God was unleashed through the spirit of God. Here's the thing. If, if you want to see Jesus, information is not enough. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing that we would know the things that the scripture is. He's the Christ. He's the son of man. He's the Messiah. Here's what he did on the cross. We need to know those things, but those things are not enough for us to truly see him. We need God's power. We need the spirit to open our eyes, to understand him for who he truly is. Again, the religious leaders knew everything there was to know about Jesus, and yet they saw right through him. They didn't see the importance. They didn't see the the significance, they were caught up in all the things that were keeping them from faith. And the truth is that many of us are in that situation. Many of us are afraid. Many of us have our own plans for a life. We, we think that we got it figured out. There's many of us who are hearing this today and are thinking, you know, Jesus is interesting, but, but not for me. I just don't, I don't know that I can really believe all of that, what you're saying, what the, the Bible says. And I would just ask, could it be that you're afraid of losing some of what you have? Could it be that, that you have an idea for your life and you don't want anyone to mess it up? Could it be that you're blind to the truth about Christ? If there's any part of you that wants to actually know Jesus, here's what you do. You pray a prayer of faith in humility, which just says, Lord, I, I want to know you, Jesus. Can you reveal yourself to me? I, I, even if you're not sure. I, Jesus, I don't even know if, if I believe. I, don't, I just, what I know is on my own, I don't think I'm gonna get it. In your power, in your mercy, would you reveal yourself? Would you help me to see you for who you truly are? And, and as faith comes, because the... Scripture is clear that for those who humble themselves, for those who know they're poor in spirit, there's, there's an abundance of life that comes. There's a power that comes. Jesus reveals himself and fills us. And that's the point where we say, now, now I see it. Yes, Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. I confess that on my own, I see the, where I'm going, which is to hell because of my sin. I, I see that that's true, but I see, Jesus, that you died for me. You are the Savior. You're the Messiah. You're you the, the Christ. And I believe, please, Jesus, make me into a person who is one of faith, who is one who has genuine life. It's what Jesus intends for his people. And it is possible, not because we figure stuff out, right? not because there's a mystery that's revealed, but because the Spirit is at work. My hope and my prayer for us as a church is that for those of us who know Christ already, we, we would, upon hearing these things, our hearts would swell with worship. Right? Praise Jesus. That it, we weren't the smartest. We weren't the ones who figured it out. It's just God's grace that we can even see him and, and let us not be blinded by those same things. The fear, the worry, the, the sense of our own self-importance. Let us, let us in, ask God to continually reveal himself to us through his spirit that we may be faithful. 
And for those who've not yet come to faith, I've been praying that today would be a day where your eyes are opened and you see your need. You come to the Lord. And if that's true, I would just, I would ask you, don't leave this place before you talk with someone. During our prayer time, afterwards, find someone with a name tag and just say, I, I think I need to know more. It would be our delight. We'd just love to talk to you more about this. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, the truth is that we have real trouble seeing you for who you are. Lord, the truth is that we are so caught up in our own ideas about our life, our own hopes for our life, our own wisdom, all the things that we think are, are bringing us genuine life and, and yet are keeping us in our sin that we can't, we can't see you truly. I mean, the religious leaders couldn't see you. If they couldn't, we, we definitely can't. Lord, I pray that you would bring about a sense of humility within our hearts, within our souls. Lord, I pray for those of us who have come to faith. Lord, may we just be grateful. May we give you all the glory for, for what you revealed to us, that we can see things clearly. May we, walk, may we walk in that faith, in that humility. May we not slip into the patterns of, of just coming to you with a list of things that we need and, and getting what we think we need and what we want. God, may we instead come and be filled, be satisfied. Lord, I pray this week would have been a week as we fasted where that was made loud and clear that it's you. You are the one that we need. You are the one that we need to see. And God, for those here who are not yet people of faith, on the brink of faith, whatever it might be, I pray you would reveal yourself. I pray they'd feel a conviction and a humbling. And Lord, that they would see that there is nothing worth hanging on to in this life if it ends with our death. And yet you have everything to give us when we come to faith and we see you as you truly are. So I pray that for us. I pray your help and your blessing by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.